Welcome to an enlightening podcast from IslamPodcasts.com. We encourage our listeners to please comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please remind your family and friends to also visit IslamPodcasts.com for engaging discussions on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran, Tafsir, Sira, and much more. Alhamdulillah, billahi min shaitan rajim bismillahirrahmanirrahim Assalamualaikum brothers and sisters, I'd like to welcome you here for another Friday Circle. Um, today we have Nesbitt, um, who's going to presenting our Muslims responsible change. Um, we know the world, man-made rule has, is falling apart, and literally as we speak, uh, with COVID-19, with uh, the economic crisis, and uh, those in power continue to suppress the rule and continue to usurp 
the, the lands and the power of the people around the world. And as we've seen lately uh, with the situation in, uh, uh, in Palestine, in Palestine, uh, we've seen that uh, once again, um, the warmongers and the oppressors uh, continue to suppress the people in that region. And the Arab nations trying to join them, trying to normalize the situation, as we saw recently with the UAE, um, visas to those countries that reject the state of Israel, the Zionist entity. Um, so it, we can ask the question, are we really responsible for change? And we need to see, are we part of that change? Uh, are we waiting for somebody else to come and create that change? So inshallah, without further ado, I'll hand over to you. Okay. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytan al-rajim. Bismillahi r-Rahman al-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Salatu wa salam ala rasul al-kareem wa ala alihi wa ashabi ajma'in. So inshallah, I want to talk about a couple of hadith. And, uh, and, 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 and there's a lesson, a significant lesson, I believe, in these hadith. And from those hadith, then I want to then continue the discussion to talk about how this can apply and what this has in terms of an impact on how we should respond to the events in the world and, and, and what actually is happening and, and what we're seeking to achieve from, from things in the world today. So the first hadith I want to talk about is uh, narrated by, uh, from Abu Huraira about the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. It's reported that he said, so this first hadith, very famous hadith, very well known, and there are a lot of commentaries on this hadith. In it, Rasulullah is reported to have said, Iman has over 70 or over 60 branches. The most excellent of which is the declaration that there is no God but Allah. And the smallest or the least of it is the removal of the harmful thing from the path. And modesty is a branch of Iman. So this hadith is number one. And I'll talk about number two straight away so that we can combine these two together. Allah, uh, the presenter, the, 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 the Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he said, uh, also by the way of Abu Huraira, so this is a part of the hadith and the piece I want to focus on is, is this part here because it links to what we've been discussing. So Allah subhanahu the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, he says, whoever relieves a Muslim of some worldly distress, Allah will relieve him of some of the distress of the day of, day of resurrection. And whoever conceals the faults of a Muslim, Allah will conceal him his faults in this world and on the day of resurrection. And whoever relieves the burden from a destitute person, Allah will relieve him of this world and the next relieve him in this world and in the next. And Allah will help his slave so long as his slave helps his brother. And there is an alternative wording of this very similar hadith. He says, by the way of Ka'b bin Ujra, whoever eases a distress of the world for a believer, Allah will ease a distress of the world for, of, on the day of rising for him. And whoever veils a believer his hidden defects, Allah will veil his defects. And whoever delivers a believer from distress, 
then Allah will deliver him from his distress. So in it, there's a distinction to be made, firstly, between uh, the first hadith and the last one, or sorry, the, the middle hadith and the last one of a similar wording. But the first one is talking about So the one who relieves or alleviates the distress of a believer. And the second one, it says, and whoever removes or delivers a believer from distress, then Allah will deliver him from distress. So they go together and they basically, they're different degrees of the same thing. So to, to relieve somebody of some distress, something which is causing them grief or, or hardship or difficulty, then Allah will do the same for us on the day of resurrection. And the same thing, um, if you if you deliver a person from their distress, i.e. remove the distress altogether, you completely end their distress and their hardship, then Allah will end the distress and hardship for us on the Qiyamah. Now, of course, without going into a lot of detail, because I'm sure that's a topic where there's a lot of uh, a lot of discussion, but the 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 distress on the Qiyamah is much worse than the distress in this life. But that's not to belittle the distress in this life. The distress and the, the hardship we feel in this life is real. And Muslims are distressed and we are feeling hardship, no doubt about it. Not only the Muslims, in fact, the whole world is suffering. But we are suffering, particularly as an Ummah, for on so many levels. There's psychological distress, there's there's financial distress, there's the physical distress, there's the, the, the torture, the, the oppression, the, the killings, the, um, the, 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 the slavery which actually exists in the world today. And Muslims are, are, are part of this. The extremely hard lives that we live, the indignity by which we have to be, our Rasul is insulted and we have no no course, no no chance to respond, no way to defend the honour of the beloved Rasul and so many other examples. Our land is stolen, our children are killed, our sons are killed, our mothers are killed, our daughters are killed. Makes no difference to the, to the enemies, they will do whatever they like against us, knowing that we have almost no ability to, to, to stand up and defend ourselves or even to repel that. So whoever was to remove a distress, whether it's a small distress or a big distress, then Allah will take will will, will, will remove the distress on the, of, of the one who does the removing on the Qiyamah. So this is a motivation for us, but it also builds in us a mentality, a certain way of thinking that our job, that one of our big responsibilities is to remove the distress. It's not enough just to dislike the distress, to say, I wish and I'll make dua that inshallah your, your, your distress ends. Because that's the common response, isn't it? You hear about somebody's in hardship, they say, make dua for me and you make dua for them. That is a good thing. But there's more to it than, than that. In fact, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through his messenger is indicating here is that he will remove the hardship from the one who removes the hardship in this life. dunya. So whoever removes or alleviates the distress from the distresses of this life. So it's, 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 it is imperative that we have in our mind and our goals and our targets that we are looking to end the suffering and the distress in this life. And that links in with the first hadith, the one that talks about Iman is over 70 parts, you know, and um, the best of it is La ilaha illallah, and the least of it is removing something harmful from the street. So the very least Iman that you could have, the very smallest part of your Iman, the thing that just holds between you as a believer and the, and, and the, the least action you can do as a believer, and almost a proof of, uh, of, of your belief, is that if you see something harmful, you feel compelled to remove it. You can't walk past the harmful thing. I talked about this recently. I use the example of banana skins. So you often see banana skins on the floor. 
You often see bottles of alcohol on the floor. You see harmful things. You see nails, screws, you know, small things on the floor. And you could walk past them and ignore them. And then you question yourself. If you hear this hadith, I walked past it. And that was the least thing that a believer would do. What kind of believer am I? What, 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 what kind of believer am I if I could just ignore that when I know it's harmful? So it could harm people's cars. It could harm the children. It could harm the adults. Old people could slip on those banana skins, trip over, cut themselves on the, on the bottles. There's so much harm that could be done. And all you have to do is remove it. Now, of course, that's not easy. It can be easy just to pick up a banana skin and put it in a bin. It might be you pick it up and you have to walk 10, you know, 100 meters, half a mile before you find a bin to put in. You may even have to take it all the way home before you find somewhere to put it. It may be that people look at you, why, you know, strangely, why is this person picking stuff off the floor? It's not something that a believer should be ashamed of, because ultimately this hadith is saying a believer is a servant of the people. He's somebody put there in order to serve the rest of humanity. And this, is, this hadith is saying, look, the very least of your iman is that you're a servant. So that, is, that attitude should be embodied in all the believers, but particularly those who are want to see change. Particularly, it should be those who want to see change and those who want to lift the hardship from the, from the, from the ummah of Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Whether it is a neighbor, whether it is the ummah overseas. You could lift the hardship from one person or you could lift the hardship from a million people, from a billion people. Because there are a billion Muslims and believers in the world today who are suffering. More than that, we are suffering immensely. You could relieve the hardship from all of the people in Xinjiang. All of the Uyghur Muslims, you could do that. And imagine the reward. Imagine the amount of hardship that Allah would take away from you on the Qiyamah if you can end and alleviate the suffering of all of the Muslims, of all those in poverty situations, the Rohingya, in, uh, who, who are forced to flee and live, in, uh, live on the edge of Bangladesh. Even Bangladesh don't want them, so they put them on an island or put them in Cox's Bazaar living in poverty. Imagine if you could lift them out of that situation. You could send $100 100 pounds, 200 pounds, you could send some money and alleviate one or two people. And that would be great because then Allah will relieve, alleviate you of some hardship on the day of judgment. But imagine if you could alleviate all of those people from the hardship. So that means that we must take this very seriously. So these two hadith go together. They build a mentality of responsibility. There is the one who knows about, who is aware of the, the problem, aware of the harm that's being done or the potential harm, he is the one responsible immediately for its removal. The one who knows about the suffering of the Rohingya, he has to then do something about the suffering of the Rohingya. The one who knows about the Uyghur Muslims, he must, he feel, feels compelled to do something to end the suffering of the Muslims in, in, in China, in Xinjiang province. In the, the, you know, as we all know the details, they're enslaved. They're forced to work in factories but without pay. That They're basically you know, in a, s slaves of the state. They're spied on. They have, you know, their, their whole Islam is denied to them. They're punished for even just showing even the slightest signs of Islam. They're forced to recite the communist and the, 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 the disbelieving, you know, thoughts and ideas and declare belief in them. So there's no doubt they're suffering. And these are just a small number of the people who are suffering. Continue thinking like that. And we soon arrive at Palestine. The Palestinian people have been denied their own homes. They've been denied their land. They suffer attacks from this Zionist entity who's occupied their lands. And they've become a symbol, a symbol of the oppression, not least because the land which is occupied is the land where the Prophet prayed. It is the land where the prophets, all of them were gathered and the Prophet led them in prayer. 
So it is a land which is mentioned in the Quran. It is called Bayt al-Maqdis. It is called the land, the blessed land. So it is a land which is close to our hearts. And there's great suffering there. And there's great mental anguish for the Muslims, whether they live there or don't live there. It hurts us every time we hear of the suffering, continued suffering of Muslims in Palestine. And so we want to do something about it. So we have lots of options. We have lots of ways to solve this problem. Some of which are serious and some of which are not serious. Some of which you could say fit in with this hadith, these two hadith, which talk about alleviating the suffering and the least parties removing the harm from the street. You could see, and some of them have no relationship with that, with that, with that whatsoever. So if you have this attitude of, of, of being a servant, then you take seriously the outcomes that you're looking for. So we are looking to solve a problem in Palestine. We're looking for the land to not be occupied. We're looking for a solution to the problem of the Uyghur Muslims. We're looking for them no longer to be persecuted for their deen. We're looking for a solution for the insults against Rasulullah We want that to end. We want there to be respect for the Prophet rather than disrespect, rather than you know, um, you know, blatant insults against him. We want the, you know, the, the Rohingya Muslims to no longer feel afraid in their own homes. So these are some of the outcomes you could, you, you could look for. And we could look for partial outcomes or we could look for beyond that for much bigger outcomes. But even then, if we look at some of these outcomes, let's just take the example of this pandemic, this coronavirus pandemic that we've got in the world today. We've seen the way that the governments have tried to solve this problem. So there was a feeling from the, the politicians that they're responsible. Whether they knew this hadith or not, whether they're Muslim or not, the politicians, everybody looked to them and said, you're responsible. You have to solve this. And they felt that. And they felt they have to at least appear, appear responsible, even if they maybe didn't care. Or maybe some of them did care and they really wanted to solve this problem. It's by the by, the important point is, what were they trying to achieve from solving this? They have this mentality they want to solve a problem. So what outcome? What, are they, what is the desired outcome? What are they looking to achieve? And when they've achieved it, they can say, yep, yeah, I've now solved it. I can stop this. I'll move on to the next thing. It could be that they wanted to control the spread of the virus. That's pretty obvious. There was an attempt to control the spread of the virus. It could be that they wanted the most people to survive, to have the least deaths on their watch effectively, you know, to stop the people dying unnecessarily if there was a way to prevent that. It could be that some of them felt this is an opportunity to get rich. I can enrich myself. I can find a way to, you know, to 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 increase my own wealth out of the chaos and the and the, and the, the chaos, you know, that is ensuing, out of the extra contracts that are going to have to be awarded for all this PPE for all of these viruses and so on. So sorry, not these vaccines and so on and various other things. It could be the goal was to protect the capitalists to make sure that at the very least the big capitalist companies and their assets and their interests do not suffer. That they are not, you know. Cause any distress or any you know harm or any lessening of their wealth as a result of this pandemic. It could be that some people saw the opportunity to deal a blow to the enemy, so they thought they'd exploit this in order to weaken their opposition, whether they are capitalist companies, whether they are countries vying off against one another. All of these are the outcomes, and really this is beyond the scope of discussion today. But the point is, all of those outcomes are possible. And we have different views on all of them, but which ones were they aiming for? By looking at what they're doing, you can see that some of them don't add up. If the real goal was to spread the stop the spread of the virus, then why did we leave all the borders open? We weren't really trying to stop the spread of the virus. So there were other goals which had competing interests, competing outcomes they wanted to achieve. 
And some of the more sinister ones, you can see that was clearly in the mind of some of the people. But when we come to the Muslim countries, I'm just talking about the Britain, America, France, and so on here. When we come to the Muslim countries, what were their outcomes they were looking to achieve? Was it just not to get thrown out, not to get removed as the ruler, not to do such a bad job that you are, you know, the opposition gets to exploit you this situation and remove you? Was it just to imitate others? Was there no outcome at all other than just be obedient and do what whatever appears to work? You can say all of these with outcomes in terms of control the spread of the virus, you know, so let the people survive and so on. But when what you actually found in terms of actions, uh, uh, um, responses from Muslim rulers was imitation. The West are doing a lockdown. We're going to do a lockdown. The West are doing, you know, X, Y and Z. We're going to do X, Y and Z. And so it seems the whole world was pretty much, as they say, singing from the same hymn sheet, following all the same patterns, regardless of where they worked or didn't work. There was no real ability to question. Obviously, um, all accountability was closed during that period. You know, the governments were not listening to anybody, any criticism whatsoever. So it, it, meant to the, it meant to the point is that the outcomes that were being sought were almost irrelevant. The outcomes were not clear. And the politicians who were irresponsible in Muslim countries for solving these problems, actually, they didn't know what a solution looked like. They didn't know what the end of the solution was. Hence, you could say that they were just chaotically imitating. And, and that is unfortunately reality. I bring this up because that is the, the mentality of most of the politicians in the world today. Most of those, and particularly all of those who deal with politics in the Muslim countries, they're not outcome focused. They don't deal, they don't look at what they're trying to achieve. They don't feel the responsibility of solving a problem. They merely are satisfied with moving a problem from one place to another so that another person has to deal with it. It's like the banana skin analogy. If you see a banana on the street and you literally throw it over onto the other side of the road, you haven't solved the problem. You solved the, the problem of there being a harm in your path, but you've just made that harm in somebody else's path. So you haven't solved it. And therefore, on the Qiyamah, you can't argue with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and say that I was serious about solving that problem. You weren't serious. You didn't try to solve the problem. You were just merely solving, you know, you were just merely solving a part of the problem and not caring about the rest of the problem. I.e., the real problem was the existence of the banana skin in anybody's path, let alone the, 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 you know, your own path. What about if you knew that there was a man who's always throwing these every morning, he eats his banana on the way to work and he drops it. So every morning you have to pick it up. There's a better way to solve that problem than merely following him and picking up. What about the one day when you don't go to work? The banana skin stays there and somebody slips on it. So maybe you preemptively go to speak to the man and tell him to stop. Give him a piece of your mind. Tell him to stop throwing the bananas. Buy a bin and put it you know, outside his house. So I throw your bin, banana skin in here. There's so many different ways you could be creative. You could create a campaign to pressure him, contact his relatives, get the neighbors talking about this man who's, who's got you know, bad manners and he keeps throwing his banana skins and so on and so forth. You could be creative. The same thing with a much bigger problem, the coronavirus pandemic. You can be creative. You can find ways, but you have to first have the mentality that you want to solve the problem. And we are motivated ourselves to solve it because we believe in Allah and we are very. We think it's very valuable that our um, our burdens will be lifted on the Qiyamah. We can't rely upon some of our politicians to have that same care and concern about the Qiyamah. So. In which case, maybe we, these are the wrong politicians for us. Not maybe, definitely. These are the wrong politicians for us. They don't care about the people. They don't care about solving problems. They care about their own personal agenda, their own personal outcomes. And they're very concerned with those. 
and not much else. Hence, you don't see a solution. If we move on to the other major example I wanted to talk about today, it's the Zionist entity, the occupation of Palestine. You have uh, a trend now that a number of Muslim countries are recognizing the, the, the occupation and they're officially recognizing and they're calling it a state. They're saying that Zionist entity is in fact a state, which now we have to accept it and we have to accept diplomatic relations with them. And we're going to open up the trade routes and we're going to open up all kinds. We're going to have passenger tourism going back and forth. We're going to allow their airplanes to come and we're going to fly to them. We're going to open embassies. We're going to have all kinds of official diplomatic relationships with them. This has become a trend. It started with Sadat. It started, it continued with uh, um, um, King Hussein in Jordan. It continued with Arafat in, in, in Palestine. And then it went quiet for, for nearly three or four decades. We didn't see anything for three decades. And then suddenly UAE and Bahrain this year announced they're normalizing the relationship, that they're just going to open the doors. Of course, we know in reality they've had a lot of discussion and a lot of behind the scenes uh, meetings and so on. But all of this was kept secret. Now it's all in the open. Now we see trade delegations coming. Now we see that there, there's an official recognition. And then there was much talk of other nations will follow suit. And lo and behold, very soon after we've seen Sudan. Sudan now, you know, is uh, is on the edge of making that 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 official recognition. They've announced publicly they're going to do it. And so it's it's just you know formalities now that are left to officially open that up. But the question is, what were the outcomes they were seeking? What was it that um, UAE felt was so valuable that they would take this move, which would anger the people against them and anger the Muslim Ummah against them? But there was something else they were looking for. The excuse they gave us was that this would um, stop the settlement activity. This would stop the increasing, the encroachment of the Zionist entity into Palestine, the Palestinian land, and it would help establish the Palestinian state, i.e. the two-state solution. So this was the stated aim. And it is no surprise, it is no secret that America has been working hard to create this two-state solution, a Palestinian state to limit the growth of um, the, the Zionist occupation. But at the same time, the Zionist occupation has all the power, all of the control. So it's a state within a state. It's a, it's, it's a state-led or an entity next to what they would call another state. But in reality, we both call them less, both of them less than states. But this was what was said to be the case. And now we have to question, are the actions they are doing, are they leading towards achieving what they claim they want to achieve, or are they leading somewhere else? Or are they just hopeless actions and merely dictated to them and no thought is given to whether it will succeed or not succeed? So the um, the 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 Bahrain and UAE they've had nearly three decades of you know they've, they've had a lot longer actually but three decades of American you know in direct involvement in the region after you know Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and then along came the Americans had the first Gulf War and so on and so forth we've had this situation where they've been told repeatedly you need the Americans to protect you against Iran. And you had Iran since the 1970s behaving like the bogeyman, you know, you know, very, very erratic, claiming they, you know, making all kinds of wild claims about the region, you know, skirmishes and so on. And so you've ended up with the situation now where the Bahrain, UAE, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, these small states, they feel they need a big protector and they feel making an ally with America or even now an ally with the Zionists is somehow going to protect them against Iran. 
So you find that this is the underlying thing that the outcome they're looking for, even though they claim that this two state is what they're after. The two state is actually somebody else's plan and it has no real thinking or concern for the, uh, the Arab Emirates or Bahrain or whatever. But it, but the, the protection and the staying you know, safe from Iran is actually the big prize that they're after. So then we have to ask the question, is making is being obedient to America and making these kind of deals and these public statements which serve America's interest and you're like ambivalent towards them. Is this something which is going to achieve what you really want to achieve, which is protection from Iran? Firstly, is Iran even a threat to you? Secondly, are you actually going to achieve protection by allying with the Zionists or allying with America? You know, do, you know, is your seat, if, even if you just take it down to the, the individual rulers themselves, is the throne more secure by having an American ally or less secure? You know, that's a really big question because a lot of dictators, a lot of presidents and prime ministers have felt themselves secure by allying with America. But in reality, they become less secure. In reality, their situation is not secure. Once America got one to get rid of them, they were easy to get rid of. They had no real difficulty getting rid of them because there was so much in the pocket of the Americans and Americans controlled every aspect of their country and their life anyway. They'd effectively handed over all security to the Americans. All of life's affairs in reality was, was looked after by the Americans. So therefore, it was so easy to remove them because there's always another person waiting in the, in the wings. And we've seen that, you know, Omar al-Bashir. We've seen that Hosni Mubarak. We've seen that Musharraf. We keep seeing that again and again rulers thinking they're safe with America when they're not. And the other big question, when you ally with a really, really big superpower, let's claim, let's, you know, just, just follow the logic through the, 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 the claims as they claim. You're a small state and you've got a big superpower, so making friends with a big superpower will protect me against everybody else. Really? Actually, it means you're just a slave of the big superpower. The superpower has, has its own agendas. It doesn't need you. It might use you. You might be useful for a while as an entity, as a state, but once they no longer want you there, once they decide that there's another plan, once they decide that Iraq, we don't want it as one Iraq, we want it as three Iraqs, we want to divide it into Shia, Sunni and Kurd in the north, who, who, what is to stop them? They do what they want because they're the big superpower and you've handed everything over. So there's a disconnect between what you claim you want to achieve, that is the public statement, what you're actually trying to achieve and the way in which you're trying to achieve it, none of this lines up. But this is the way we are except, you know, we as an Ummah are expected to accept this hook, line and sinker. Now we're here on the 22nd of November, the Saudis of, um, you know, Saudi Crown Prince and Netanyahu had a secret meeting. This is only a week ago. And, you know, there's been lots of talk about the Saudis making the next deal with the, the, the Zionist entity. You see, you know, they, they, they didn't even condemn the UAE's move. They actually praised them for it, saying it was a very good thing. So clearly they've opened the door to this discussion. Pakistan also opened this door. Actually, this door has been open with Pakistan for a long time. But public opinion was so intensely against the, the Zionists and the, the Jewish occupation of Palestine that it actually it never really went anywhere. And now it's been ventured again. A number of personalities, a number of people in the Pakistan have been pushing out this idea that we should follow suit and start recognizing that really what is wrong with recognizing that occupation. And of course, now the government have denied it. Imran Khan is saying, no, 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 not on my watch. No, I couldn't live myself. I couldn't sleep at night if I knew that after all the oppression they've done. So they're denying it. But reality, they were testing the water. 
reality, it's only a matter of time before they manage to steer it so they can undertake such an action as well. For what? Because they want to have their debts removed. They also want to have an ally with America and, and you know, the Zionist occupation against, uh, against India, not realizing that in, they, India has its own relationships or they're trying to neutralize that, that relationship they have. All of these ideas come to mind as what they could be looking for, but it's a very similar situation. What could the Saudis gain by you know, such a move? We find it's, 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 it's uh, you know, Sudan, when they did it, their whole goal was just to remove Sudan from the terrorist list. So Sudan is announced by America that you're no longer on the list of terrorists in order, um, you know, as in exchange for recognizing the Palestinian occupation, the occupation of Palestine. So you, the, the question then comes is like, what does Sudan want to gain? What is the, the thing they're looking for out of this removal of their name from this terrorist list? Is it just they don't want to be, they feel so ashamed of being called terrorists? Is it that they want to have, you know, honor and glory? And, uh, and uh, you know, we have to ask the question, what is so special about America praising you and saying, we no longer consider you a baddie. We consider you one of the good guys. You're an ally now, no longer a bad guy. You know, what, what is it you want to, you know, um, the, you, you, you want to, you know, um, lead to an advancement of your economy. You want to open up industries. You want to open up diplomatic relations and, and uh, you know, trade, international trade and enrich the country. Is that the goal? Is that because that's what you will hear as the excuse as to why we need to be off that terrorist list. And a lot of people will buy into that and say, that's OK, you're no longer on terrorist list. Now we can start, uh, you know, building the economy. Egypt is not on that terrorist list and it never has been. But let's look at the economy of Egypt. Is that an independent, thriving economy? Look at Saudi. Is that an independent, thriving economy? Look at any of the countries in the surrounding region, any of the countries in Africa, any of the countries in the Middle East, any of the countries in the Far East who are not on those terrorist lists. But have they been allowed to develop independently? Or are they mere vassals? Are they states which are subservient in the interests of the, the superpower? And therefore, they, their economies are only allowed to grow as much as will serve the superpower. In fact, you're opening up, you know, what, why is it? Is cozying up to America really the way in which to build your economy and take your, your, your people to new heights and, and, and a new anahda, you know, a new revival, a new elevation? It's not really the way. Nobody else is achieving that. When you remain subservient, you don't achieve that. So then the question is, what else could be achieved? What could be in the minds of uh, Pakistan? What could be in the minds of Saudi? What could be in the minds of, the, of, of Sudan and Sudanese? It could be that you want to lead humanity. It could be that when you hear the Rasul being insulted in the West, that the Muslims, like every Muslim, is thinking, how dare they insult him? He is the last and final messenger to humankind. He is the one who brought the light to take people out of darkness into light. It could be that you desire that the whole world is guided towards the truth of Islam, and you want to set the example and lead the Ummah away from the oppression. You want to not allow the oppressors to get away with oppressing the people, and you want to build a, a, you know, a new hope for the people of the world to live prosperity, to live economic prosperity, to live safe lives. This is inevitably going to be in the minds of pretty much all of the Muslims. Why? Because this is the goals of Islam on this earth. These are the goals that which have been put for us, and they're pretty obvious for all of the Muslims to see. All of us who've read the seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi can see that he was trying to look after the affairs of the people, that he was very concerned and caring 
about the people and he didn't want to see endless suffering and he wanted to remove the oppression. He wanted to remove the darkness because the Quran tells, take people out of the darkness into the light, take people away from Tahut and oppression. So this theme is not unusual for the Muslims. So the question is then, is the best way of leading the humanity to, to, to prosperity and guidance, is it through cozying up to America? Is it through adopting the American way of life? Is it through, you know, allowing America to be our guarantor of, of, uh, of our security and we have no independent, um, you know, security apparatus ourselves? We, we rely upon a superpower who adopts a completely different way of life, who in fact is responsible for all the oppression in the world today. How is it that, how can you square that circle? How can you fit, you know, how can you um, say that that situation Cozing up to the superpower, the oppressive superpower, is somehow going to lead the people to guidance. It isn't in reality ever going to do that. So again, there's a really big disconnect between people, what people say they want. They want to, you know, stop the suffering of Palestine. They want peace with the Zionist entity. They want peace in the Middle East. This is the word you always hear. But how on earth is peace going to happen by having a two-state solution? Where is the connection between two states and peace? Where is the connection with recognizing the occupation and peace? Where is the connection between claiming that you want to end the, the increasing settlements, which in reality won't happen, and achieving peace? None of that is possible. None of those lead one to the other. There's no logical connection from one to the other. So therefore, it, these, are, these are merely dreams and they're not reality. But we do want to lead the ummah, to, to the whole of humanity, in fact. To, to, you know, to a better way of life. We do want to lead the world out of this misery and darkness that they're in and show them a better way and actually solve the problem. We don't really want to say Islam has a better economic system. We want to implement it and show the world it has a better economic system. We want them to feel the benefits and the fruits of it so they do actually become genuinely wealthy people in an Islamic economic system, that they genuinely have safe and peaceful lives. We don't wish for any people in the world to be suffering under the capitalist system. We don't want people to be working these 18-hour shifts, these 12-hour shifts. We don't want them to be slaves to a, a capitalist you know, economy. We want them to have time on their hands that they can spend in recreation and worship, as well as doing the work which is necessary to feed their families. But we don't want them to constantly be you know, working to, you know, literally their, their fingers to the bone it, so that somebody else gets incredibly rich while everybody else is, you know, enslaved and constantly in debt, constantly owing, constantly, you know, um, having actually no will, no free will to choose what they want to do because they are, in fact, enslaved to the system. We don't want the politicians of this world to get away with abusing the people. We want there to be genuine accountability. So we want to end this pretense which is called the free, the free, the the free press and freedom of speech, which doesn't exist, and it's oh, and actually the claim that it exists is the thing that stops the the rulers and the the oppressors truly being accounted. So we have all of these lofty goals in mind, and then you have to ask yourselves the question: Those are the outcomes that I want to achieve. So what am I doing today? How are my actions going to achieve that? Often we hear the Muslim Ummah agree with us in part that they want to end the suffering of the Rohingya Muslim. They want to end the suffering of the Uyghur. They want to end the occupation of, of, of Palestine. And then you, the, the question then, of course, but what can we do? And people say, well, 
I'll give some charity because there's not much else I can do. I'll send some money to alleviate the suffering of a few people. There's not much else I can do. The question doesn't even get asked is, can that money even arrive there? Lots of people still want to give money to Syria, not realizing that that money is very, very difficult. It's very unlikely to reach actually people, Syrian people on the ground. Mothers and sons separated by, you know, by, uh, across countries can't send money between each other. A son can't send mon money to alleviate the hunger of his own mother. What, what chance does do charities have of, of, so, of, of doing such a thing? And are you actually solving the, you know, the root cause of the hunger in the first place? Of course not. But people feel hopeless. People who then do decide to do a little bit more, they then decide, okay, I'm going to learn Hadith. I'm going to learn Quran. I'm going to set up a school. I'm going to set up an institute. I'm going to set up some websites. I'm going to send some memes. I'm going to expose the, 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 um, the, the hypocrisy of freedom of speech when they insult Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa I'm going to expose the hypocrisy of the way they deal with Palestine and the, the Zionist occupiers, how, diff, how, how you know, they have different standards and double standards. So a lot of people get involved in a lot of these things. But then you have to ask the question, does that actually lead towards the aim? Does that actually lead one step closer towards achieving an objective? Actually, you'll find in 90% of the time it doesn't. You find people go out on marches to express their anger. They go out on demonstrations to stand outside the embassies and explain, you know, you know, the 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 the, the Zionist entities embassy in London. You get people demonstrating out outside it. The American embassy you get people demonstrating outside it. But to what end? What can you achieve from that? What could that possibly achieve? By saying I'm very very angry. We know you're angry, and you've said you're angry, and maybe that is you feeling that that's the least thing you could do because at least I'm hating it in my heart, and that's just an expression of hatred in your heart. I agree, and I'm not going to criticize that you have that hatred. But then I have to ask the question, and we should all ask the question, are the actions we are doing in line with these hadith? The least part of Iman is removing something harmful from the street. It's the actual removal. So is the, 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 the feeling of hatred of the occupation or the feeling of the hatred of oppression so strong in us, and it is leading to an action that is or is not leading towards achieving an aim, achieving something practical which will end the suffering. Is it actually removing the harm? Is it actually going closer? Or is it just something I'm doing because it satisfies myself? Or is it something I'm doing not because I, I, I'm particularly interested in being satisfied, but because I'm imitating others? Others do this, so I do this. I've seen people talk about doing these things, so I will do this. This is the standard response. So here's the question we have to ask ourselves, and particularly, inshallah, for ourselves, you know, listening and talking about this today. If we've developed the mentality, as is in these ahadith, we have to first care about the problem. We have to care deeply about the fact that there is something harmful in the way of whether it's my path or any other Muslim's path or any path, across, you know, frankly, of anybody in the world. I have to care deeply that there exists harm in people's paths. I have to care deeply that there exists suffering that there exists distress that needs to be removed. And then I have to be deeply concerned for making sure that I, as the aware person, am responsible and I actually change. I actually change that thing. I actually remove that harm. So I'm concerned deeply for the outcome. And the outcome must be achieved. And nothing less than achieving the outcome will I accept. And that makes me plan. That makes me have a plan in order how to achieve that which then I put into action and I have to do actions which 
either will help or maybe hinder. And if I find that they're hindering, then I have to stop doing those actions and I have to keep on doing the actions which are correct. And I have to keep on adjusting and changing my actions or improving my actions to help me get closer and closer to the outcome. But if I'm merely doing what the guy next to me does, and I'm merely saying, well, you know, we do it this way and everybody knows we do it this way and I'm just going to carry on doing it this way without giving any real concern and thought to whether there is an outcome in my mind, whether it's clear in my mind and whether I'm actually achieving that, then I will end up setting up the next institute, the next school, the next meme, the next website. I'll just keep doing these robotic actions without really being very concerned whether they're achieving something or not achieving something, because I wasn't clear on what they were aimed to achieve in the first place. I wasn't clear on what I was trying to achieve, i.e. the outcome I was looking for, before I selected the action. Rather, I selected the action and I hoped that it might lead towards something good in a vague sense without having absolute clarity of how it could lead that way. So I'll end it there, inshallah. Maybe we'll have some questions, maybe some discussion. Allah knows best. But that is the, the really the point I wanted to make is that these two ahadith, inshallah, they build the mentality, which is the, 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 the mentality of the, po po the politician is the one who looks after the affairs of the people. So the mentality of the politician should be one who is genuinely concerned and determined to actually look after the people. Inshallah, brothers and sisters, if you have any questions, uh, please do uh, pose your questions in the uh, chat section. And inshallah, um, we should try to answer it to this. Inshallah. Yeah, yeah, inshallah, while the brothers and sisters, um, um, while the brothers and sisters put uh, questions together, inshallah, um, you talked about this issue of change and the responsibilities that we have uh, as Muslims. Um, but isn't it the case that uh, too often we wait for somebody else to come along and make the change? You know, uh, for example, we've been hearing for many years uh, the excuse that. Um, we need to wait for Madian Islam to come before anything changes for us. Um, and then this, it was a case that people were waiting for a good leader to come. And then it was a case of uh, people waiting for uh, somebody to lead them. Um, uh, but actually uh, uh, beginning this change in terms of uh, actually dealing with the problem. Sorry, Jazakallah khair. Yeah, shukran. So, I mean, so that's really a question about who, you know, who is going to create the change itself. And really, when you feel that you're helpless and um, you feel you can't make any change yourself, you look for somebody else, you're looking around for somebody who's going to help you. And then you hear about these ahadith which talk about the, you know, the coming of a great man, of somebody who's going to have superpowers or, you know, amazing powers or amazing, you know, uh, obedience of the ummah towards him, or he's going to defeat Isa, he's going to sorry, defeat the Dajjal and, Isa alayhi salam is going to come and you hear these great stories and therefore you're you're you feel okay that that person will solve the problem for me you know or you're looking for you know you you see the enormity of the task in front of you of how big it is and you see well 
you know, everybody is living life in chaos. Everybody's just got their heads down and they're just focused on the on their daily lives. And therefore, you you say, well, inshallah, a great leader will come and he will lead us. And so, therefore, sometimes you you know you get fooled by these Imran Khans who come along and they say Tahrik Saf, They say we're going to purify the politics in Pakistan, and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, great, because they feel the problem, but they're looking for anybody who's going to solve it. And they think, wow, such a great cricketer, he must do good. Everybody loves him. He can't can't fail. What you didn't realize, of course, is that he was put there because the army agreed to put him there. He didn't actually create any change. He definitely didn't rock the boat. He didn't. You know, that was his remit. He had a very limited sphere. You're there to, to tidy up the image, you know, to bring a few new slogans and prolong the life of this regime. But you're certainly not there to to to, to question or even to, uh, to to harm the interests or, the, you know, to break the relationship of, of, of subservience with America or anything like that. And, and then you've got a, a million excuses around it. Lots of people trying to distract you and steer you off in, in lots of different directions. It's understandable where this mentality comes from, but it's not acceptable. You know, you could you, you could accept it from somebody who, who never picks up a book, who never picks up a hadith, who himself is like, you know, is 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 quite selfish and self-centered or just very, very busy and whatever. Allah put him in a circumstance where they have no ability and they never raise themselves in order to look beyond that. But that's not acceptable for the majority of people. That's not acceptable for the one who starts to become aware of the problem. And the more you're aware of the problem, the more you start to realize that the standard solutions, i.e. supporting the current crop of rulers or just looking for the great leader who's going to come and save us. Even if we say, I'm going to wait for the Khalifa, the Amir al-Mu'mineen, Atar bin Khalil Abu Rishta, he's going to come and save us. Even that is not acceptable because all you're doing is saying somebody else is responsible. Even when people say, oh, I'm going to wait for Hizb al-Tahrir, they're going to solve this problem, they're going to establish Khilafah, everything's going to be great once they, once they succeed. That's not acceptable. It's good that the people have put their hopes and have a, a goal, a clarity of what kind of solution we're looking for. But it's not acceptable that people could say that them there are responsible and they're not saying me, me personally, I'm responsible. There's the problem. The problem is when you don't feel the responsibility, so therefore you don't look for the actual solution that you can bring. You know, you're saying somebody else is going to come along and remove the banana skin, but it's certainly not me. I'm waiting for the, the great banana skin remover to remove the, all the bananas. It's, 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 it's fantasy. You have that responsibility yourself. And you know it when you see the bananas and the bottles and the, the, and the nails and the harmful things in the street. And you know how easy it is, or even if there's some slight hardship, but you know it's within your capability. But you delude yourself into thinking that I don't have the capability to create real change. And you delude yourself. Why? Because you haven't thought about what am I trying to achieve? It was obvious with the banana, it was to remove the harmful thing from the street. With the Ummah, it's less obvious. We hide behind slogans. Even we ourselves hide behind the slogan of Stabish Khilafah. Khilafah is going to solve the problems. Actually, is that the, is that the right answer? Is it that Khilafah is going to solve the problems? Or is it a political party is going to bring back caring for the affairs of the Ummah in the correct way? And therefore, that is the, that is the, the, the change that is going to happen. And that will take the form of having a Khalifa. Because if we say just establish Khilafah and we don't concern ourselves with the politics and taking care of the Fez Ummah, then we'll end up with a Khilafah like the Abbasid, like the Umayyad, like the ones that destroyed the Ummah the first time, that allowed the whole Khilafah system to fall apart. We'll, add, add, we'll have Khalifas like we had in the past who will be very concerned with their personal interests and they'll have very little concern for the Ummah. They'll be bickering amongst themselves, vying for power, petty power struggles, and they won't be guiding the Ummah to to you know the whole world rather to, to to guidance and light we will have a weak state even if we have a state 
But, it, you know, and, and for some people, that's enough tick a box. But actually, that's not enough. That should never be enough. Because what we're looking for is the elevation. We're looking for the, uh, the guidance for all of mankind and the elevation of thinking so that people start to see the truth from the false of the haq and the batu. It's obvious because you've got a state which embodies it. And it shows everybody what is the false, false, false falsehood in the world. And so everybody is attracted to the justice because there is justice. How are you going to expect all of these non-Muslims to become Muslims if we don't embody Islam, we don't implement it? And when they visit and they see our example, they can see you're just as chaotic as us. You don't know how to solve pandemics. We don't know how to solve it. You don't know how to bring justice. We don't know how to bring justice. You don't know how to solve the problem of the gangsters on the streets. You've got your own problems. They won't look to us for guidance because they'll see we don't actually have solutions. So here's our big problem. And that's why we have to feel the problem personally. It's not somebody else's problem. It's my problem. My problem is that I have to know what the actual outcome I'm trying to achieve is. And when I know the outcome, when I know what I'm trying to achieve, in reality, what it looks like, I know I can make a path towards that. So I realize that me, myself, yes, I, Yahya, am weak on my own. I'm not capable of doing all of this change on my own. But I understand the way people change. They don't require a, 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 you know, a, a great charismatic leader. That's not the prerequisite. That is one way in which people get led, led towards the truth. But they also get led by parties. They also get led by actual politicians showing them, you know, practical solutions for, you know, for, in their daily lives. They actually get led by people who show them the light by discussion, by thought, people they can trust, people they know have got their head screwed on properly. And so I realized that we are part of a movement. That it's not one person, it's us together. When we behave like politicians, the ummah then starts to understand what it means to look after the affairs of the people. They understand what is the real, real solution for the occupation of Palestine. They understand what is the real economic policy we should be implementing in a pandemic. They understand really what it is we should be doing in order to stop the spread of the virus. We should be doing that. So, and, and, and they understand what it is we should be doing in order to tell people about Islam and they become Muslims. So they start to have a lot more clarity because we have clarity and we are the ones living it and embodying it and giving it to them. But if we don't have that clarity, if we're always saying somebody else has the clarity and don't ask me, ask him, actually the Ummah themselves are, are going to see right through that. They're not going to feel attracted and they're not going to change because we ourselves are now, you know, part of the problem because we're not, we're not, we, we are now in that imitation mode, just like the politicians overseas. They relied upon somebody else's thinking to solve the problems. We ourselves are relying upon somebody else's thinking to solve the problems. And therefore we're not delivering solutions. We're not presenting ourselves as people who can be trusted, having solutions, and therefore we don't see any change in reality. So that means we have to take a step back and look, the actions that I am I doing, am I helping or hindering? The actions that I am doing, am I leading towards change or not? What change do I actually want to see? And we start the process again. Uh, Brother Abdullah has a question. Um, what is the American plan for the region? And what is the purpose of uh, the normalizations that are taking place? I mean, it's kind of off the topic. It's not what we're talking about today. So, you know, it's just a, that's just an analysis of, of what is America trying to achieve. Obviously, my, my point is that America is not trying to achieve the same thing as we're trying to achieve. So relying upon America to be the one who guarantees how, what you're going to achieve, actually, clearly it's not going to work. If you have one person in a strong position and one person in a weak position and the weaker one just closes up next to the stronger one thinking that 
I'm going to achieve everything I want this way. That, that's, that's fantasy. That's deluded, delusional thinking. Because you won't achieve what you want. You'll achieve what they want. And you'll just be a partner in achieving what they want. I mean, to choose a crude example of the, the Liberal Democrats in this country, they cozied up to the Conservatives. They thought they were going to get in power and they ended up betraying their whole electoral base. And now they're unelectable. You know, it'll be a whole generation before anybody trusts them again. Why? Because they did exactly what the Muslim rulers do today. They think that by getting, you know, just getting the power is how they're going to achieve what they want. But they achieve nothing. They didn't even get close to saying what they said they were going to achieve. Why? Because their desires became almost irrelevant because they were merely a conduit to help. They were the weaker one, but helping the stronger one get what they want. And so therefore, who had the upper hand? So one thing, they're naive as politicians. Secondly, they chose a completely wrong path. And that is the point I'm trying to make with ourselves in this, you know, as an Ummah today, we uh, behave in a naive way when we start to think that somehow achieving a peace process, you know, what is labelled peace is going to achieve actual peace. It won't. It's merely a name, it's a label which sounds attractive, but it doesn't come even where close towards peace. Because that is peace really what America wants to achieve. That isn't what America wants to achieve. That might be a temporary stepping stone towards what it wants to achieve. And it might be for some period of time they want peace until they next want the next war or they want the next oppression. They don't seem very determined um, to achieve peace. They're very happy with Sisi, yet Sisi is not bringing peace to the Egyptian people. They're very happy with Bashar al-Assad, but there's no peace with Bashar al-Assad. There never has been. Before the revolutions, there was no peace for the, for the, um, the Syrian people. So we have to really question these so-called objectives, these slogans, are they anything like the reality that we want to achieve? Because we have goals, we have aims and targets, and we should be aiming for those targets and seeing that the ways that these people choose actually have no relationship with what we want to achieve. They're merely excuses. I think you started today's um, discussion on the Hadith, um, where the Prophet talks about alleviating the suffering uh, of our brothers uh, in the world, our brothers and sisters in the world. Um, but we see that um, people try in different ways to be made. Um, for example, there, some people have uh, decided to um, organize charity organizations um, and um, uh, others have taken part uh, the political process in various countries around the world, including here, in order to think that, uh, that they can actually uh, help us as a community. Uh, but the people are um, um, putting effort into building massages in uh, various countries in the world. But to um, alleviate the suffering, are um, uh, these uh, particular actions going to alleviate the, the suffering that you talk about during a circle of the people of the Rohingya, of the brothers in Palestine, etc.? Yeah, I th just cut the end. I wasn't sure. Yeah, I was just yeah. saying that at the end there, I was saying that are these actions going to uh, alleviate the suffering of our uh, brothers and sisters in Palestine or in Rohingya, etc.? See, that's the great thing about the being of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. You know, Allah's last, you know, the, the, the deen that's been chosen for us, al-Islam, is that the, the, the ahkam are so detailed that even if you have no understanding, if you just follow in a, in a, in a, a rote, imitatory fashion, you still end up achieving good. 
So even if people focus on just one or two small actions, maybe that is the one or two small actions which will reward them and make them successful in the next life. But also they bring good in this life. So you could be just literally the guy who feeds a, uh, a, a hungry person or you do very little, but you just, you know, you remove banana skins or you do very little, but you, you, you build a masjid or you donate to a masjid. All of these things are good on your account in the Qiyamah, but they're also good in this life and they bring good. So there's no criticism whatsoever for anybody who gives charity. There's no criticism for anybody who builds a masjid. There's no criticism for everybody, anybody who wants to pray extra nafil prayer. None of this is criticizable. None of this should be criticized. All of this is part of the deen. And for us to be truly caring about the deen and have the, you know, uh, have, have the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa as our first and foremost in our mentality and our in our hearts, then we will try to do all of these actions as much as we can. There's no doubt that we, we should do that. The only question is, is that we must not conflate one thing with another. We must not say building a masjid really alleviates the suffering of the Muslims in Palestine. It doesn't. And you must not pretend that it does. You know, in reality, we've seen the way the masjid behave in a lot of the Muslim countries. It is a place where destitute people can go to, you know, go to sleep, go to find some shelter. It is a place which can be used as a hub for the community and you get to meet people and you know about your neighbours and you know about their suffering and you have an opportunity therefore to help them. It is a place that can be used as a kind of a soup kitchen or a place to feed the hungry. So just building a masjid has many other benefits other than just a place to pray. A masjid has so much uh, that it brings and these are knock-on effects. But you, it will be really the long way around to say, in order to solve the problem of poverty in the Muslim world, I'm going to build a masjid because the masjid is a great place to get to know the poor people and is a great place to, you know, to distribute food from. That you shouldn't try to convince yourself that one leads to another because one doesn't actually lead to the other. One leads to another in a long term, in a roundabout way, but it doesn't lead directly towards that. And there are other actions you could do which are more direct and focused on actually alleviating the problem of poverty. And so we need to then be clear not to just look at, um, do an action which you want to do or you've seen in a hadith and therefore it's appealing to you and you want to do it. And then you start to exaggerate and add extra benefits to it. And you say, well, it also brings these other benefits. Yes, you're right. It also brings those other benefits. But does it actually, is it, are those benefits directly linked or is it kind of you're scratching, you know, scraping at the bottom of the barrel? To, 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 to get those benefits. I'll give you an example. We often hear people say, look at the look at Yasser Qadi, look at um what's his name? I don't know, Man Ali Khan. Look at these um, look at uh, in England we've got that guy, what's his name? Um Akram Madwi. Look at these great, you know, um personalities, these ulama, these knowledgeable people, and look at the courses they're running. Look how they've built their academic profile. Look how everybody trusts them. They go to them for their for their fiqh of wudu and their fiqh of salah and they ask them questions about marriage and they ask them questions. And look now, because they've been built at such a profile of talking about these, these detailed aspects of, his, of Muslims' life, they even get questioned on politics. They make comments and they talk about it and they have some influence. Shouldn't we be like that? Look how many likes they get on Facebook. Look at their YouTube likes. Shouldn't we be like that? I know. I tell you what, the plan we're going to you know, do is to get together. We're going to set up an institute. We're going to learn Quran. We're going to learn Hadith. And we're going to promote amongst the Ummah that we know Quran and Hadith. We're going to answer lots of picky questions of every kind. And we're going to make ourselves the muftis. And we're going to become the, the mufti people that everybody relies upon. And we're going to go door to door. We're going to spend. We're going to. We're going to. There's no. no um, you know, we're not going to. 
diminish our efforts at all in this. We're going to, you know, we're going to keep working at this until we achieve that. And at that point, we'll be so respected. When we speak about Khilafah, people will listen because, mashallah, we got their attention. I hear people say that and they think this is a viable plan, but they haven't really thought about what are the, what, what are the other side of that? What harm are you going to do? What all that academic, you know, discussion and debate and, and, and um, profile you have, in fact, you won't be respected as a politician because you're not a politician. You're an alim. You're considered one of these personalities. You're the guy who gets likes on Facebooks, but you're not to be taken seriously when it comes to political matters. And the proof is that none of these guys are actually taken seriously in politics. They, 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 they dare not venture into politics other than a few safe issues, which just make a few controversial points and then leave the politics to the politicians because they're not actually involved in that. They don't have that profile. In fact, people would turn away from them the moment they start talking and criticizing the politicians because politics requires a lot more than just the acknowledgement of Hadith and Quran and just knowing the academic theories. It actually requires knowing what the people's needs are. It requires knowing what the, the solutions are for the people's problems. It requires knowing what the plots and plans against you are and exposing them. It requires exposing the bad politicians and vying against them so that you then your, your, your solutions are the ones that people will adopt and look to you. It requires a lot more than just having a, a lot of likes on Facebook and, and YouTube, you know, views. It requires a political party. Now, none of these guys are parts of political parties because they know it hampers their personality building. Whereas we ourselves should not be looking at their personality building and say, oh, our personality, our political party needs a few academic institutes. Now, I'm not saying that academic institutes are harmful, full stop. I'm not saying that at all. But for us to say that they are the way to achieve the aims of, you know, his career or political party, that's wrong. That's merely some extra benefits you're adding on, but they don't achieve that same thing because they're two totally different topics. Politics is politics. Academic study is academic study. And they're not the same thing. They have different outcomes that you're trying to achieve from them. That's the point I'm trying to make. Exactly. You're saying there, and uh, two examples came to my mind. One was um, when Omar bin Qatab went past the, the masjid and he heard uh, people doing zikr in the masjid. And he actually went in and um, uh, was about to beat them with a stick, saying um, to them, Well, this is the time uh, where you have the responsibility to actually earn your rizq uh, rather than be sitting in the mosque. Um, that was one example to mind, and the other was. Um, I think, uh, am I right in saying, was it the Mongols when they were um, invading Baghdad and uh, people were um, discussing academic uh, discussions rather than actually dealing with the invasion? Yeah, sorry, I was reading that comment on Facebook. I, I missed your question, sorry. Okay, I was going to say there's uh, two examples that came to mind. Um, one was that of Umar bin Qatab when he uh, walked past the masjid and he heard people doing zikr in the mosque. And uh, he was about to beat them with a stick to uh, uh, say to them, well, look, this is the time uh, that Allah has given for you to be working and um, earning the rizq. Uh, this is part of your duties as well. Um, yeah. And the others come uh, to mind was, I think, when the Mongols were invading uh, Iraq and Baghdad and uh, some of the scholars were uh, sitting debating inside um, the masjid rather than actually dealing with the issue of the invasion. Yeah, so there comes a question of prioritization. Without a doubt, you have to, you know, you have many good actions in it. And we're not saying all actions are equal and all actions should be chosen and done to equal extent. Of course, it's according to the need. It's according to the, 
uh, you know, and, and that comes down to your awareness of the problem. And not everybody's going to be accounted on an absolute, you know, like there's one action that everybody must do because it really depends upon your own personal circumstance. There's some actions that that you can do that I can't do. There's some actions, there's some problems you're aware of that I'm not aware of. And we're accountable according to our, you know, our our knowledge, our awareness of, of what the solution is. So we're not accountable for our mistakes or our our lack of knowledge of something, but we are accountable as soon as we are aware of a problem. So the question is, is like, and you're going to have people who who have deeper insight, and 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 ultimately we should be looking for those people and promoting them, you know, into leadership positions amongst us because they have a better understanding of the problem. There's no harm in us working together. It's not that every single person is responsible entirely as every individual to to, to create all the change on their own. That that's wrong. That's not reality. The the truth of the of the matter is is that. Even the greatest alim, even the greatest sheikh, no matter who he is, he can't create change on his own. Even if he's got all the correct thinking and writes all the best books and all the absolute clear, clear um, solutions, he won't create change on his own. Why? Because his reach, his influence is very limited. But once he starts working together with others, once they form a party, an organization, then they can start to create real change. Now, if that was a party of just ulama going around teaching academic things in an ulama, in an alimi way, then... Again, they're, they're not going to create real change because they're not addressing the problems as they uh, according to the actual problems. They're addressing only parts of the problems, which is a lack of some academic knowledge. But the ummah as a whole doesn't lack, doesn't suffer because it lacks academic knowledge. The academic knowledge is there and it exists in our ulama, but it suffers. Why? Because it has bad politicians who serve other people's agendas and don't aren't accounted for that. And and there's no alternative politicians put forward for them to to refer to and 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 give their leadership to them. And 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 and, and all of this is, you know, is founded upon a, a, a you know a, a weakness in our thinking, our, our ability to analyze problems and come up with solutions and connect them to the text and clarity in terms of um our concepts and ideas about life. All of that is a little bit murky and muddy, hence we end up imitating others rather than doing our own thinking. So those are the two major obstacles if you look at them in, in the way of the Muslim Ummah today. And it requires both of them actually require political movement. It requires a party to to solve. So the only way we can solve that problem is, you know, is is by yes, the cultural side is of of correcting the false our concepts and ideas about life, and 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 kind of effectively training the society on 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 deeper thinking, but not for its own sake, but on you know an enlightened way of thinking, which actually connects the problems to the solutions based upon the, the the firm fixed reality which is the truth of the quran and the sunnah and the actual reality in front of us depending on what it actually is and that changes every single day but it requires people who live amongst the people who show them the solutions and show them and talk about their problems and listen to them and care enough about them to come up with real genuine solutions and show them the path that they have to walk down and of course that requires establishing khilafah and it requires that this uh, this party continue accounting the whoever the the elected officials are within that um that that, that khilafah so that, that we don't ever then take a step backwards again that we keep on moving forward so it isn't just a problem of ulama it isn't just an individual problem it is a problem that can only be solved together you know this you know while you were talking I was reading the comments on the Facebook page and I noticed one question was saying look there's so many movements out there all of them trying to change. Uh, create change and they don't seem to be going anywhere how can we measure our progress in the dawah and how do we know if we are achieving our objectives that was asked just now in response to what we're talking about 
you know, it's 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 a huge topic, and it's not something you can give a one word answer to. But if you have clarity in your goals in what you're trying to achieve, then you can start to say, uh, "Am I?" You can start to measure. You can start to say, "Am I achieving it?" So I could say, "I am." Uh, my goal is for more people to convert to Islam, and I can start to measure it to say, "Are more people converting to Islam?" And then I could start to say, "Is uh, you know how am I? What actions am I doing to get people to convert to Islam?" I could say, "I'm writing books, lots and lots of books, and I'm printing, I'm publishing websites, lots of websites." And then I can ask the question. Is what I'm doing create? Is it leading to more people um, converting or not? Is, is anybody reading these books? When they read these books, do they have questions that go unanswered, and therefore they put them down and they don't they, they don't they don't continue questioning? Is there another problem? Is there something that my websites are uh, have like kind of like you know question and comment boxes on them? So I get a bit of back and forth and discussion, but then I find that everybody else is looking around saying, "Yeah, but." You know everything you say is right, and I agree with it. But you know, look at all those people. Are, look at all the people in your country. Look at the people in Pakistan. They all want to come to England. Look at all the people in Egypt. They all want to come to you know America. Look at the people in Tunisia. They all want to go to France. You know, if if Islam is so great, why are, why are people why are people leaving Islam? Why are people you know converting away from Islam? Why are people leaving their countries and running after what the West has got? And so now you have you know a question which is going unanswered. So I can answer the question now. My goal is to get people to convert to Islam, but I'm finding the techniques, the styles that I'm using are not yet achieving that. And there's another obstacle in their way, and that is the existence of all of these, you know, nonsense in our Muslim lands, all these weak states that you know, don't really represent Islam, although people imagine that they represent Islam. And so I have to counteract that. So I have to add that to my discussion, or I have to say, actually, I can't really achieve very much until... I address that problem over there, and then that is actually the the, the more 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 meaningful way of doubt. In which case, I say my outcome perhaps was limited. In perhaps it's, it will forever be limited. My point is, I'm just giving one example, but there's so many examples we could choose. We have to look at what are the what are the things we are trying to achieve, and how are we going to achieve them, and then we can start to say the measures. You know, the truthfully, most of the groups, uh, Islamic groups, they're organisations which exist in order to give you a better feeling as Muslim, to protect the youth or protect Islam or keep people away from Munkar. And you have to ask the question, are they achieving that? Are people actually being kept away from Munkar? Is that a goal or just a partial goal? Is that something which itself is just a step towards something else? And you often find that there's complete vagueness, lack of clarity in most people when you ask, what are we actually trying to achieve? What is the big goal of this institute? What is the big goal of this charity? What is the big goal of or even just the partial goals of these activities which are arranged and organized for us? These circles and masks, these khutbahs, these football sessions in the masajid. What are what, what are the goals? And you find it's vagueness. You know, it, it, it kind of it usually taps into something which is popular in the society at the time. Football in masjid, it's a youth club, keep the youth off the streets, you know, give them something else to do, don't let them get into drugs. That's the standard solution that any social worker is going to come up with, that any youth worker in any organization, Christian group, even a secular group, football clubs, all kinds of youth clubs exist for that purpose. And you're just now another one of them, even though you've got an Islamic tinge to it. And you think you're going to get the people, play football, give them a little talk afterwards, and somehow they're all going to become, you know, they're going to be kept away from Munkra. But you're not really aware of what the Munkra is. You're not aware of the problem and the, the pressure on these young people and so therefore you're not addressing it the right way. 
you're addressing part of it. Part of the problem is a sense of belonging, but that's not the whole problem. That isn't the whole the whole gangster, you know, culture that exists in the inner cities and even in the countryside now in, in Britain. It's not just because young people don't have a sense of belonging. That's not it. That's part of it, but that's not it. There's more to it than that. And so you have to delve deeper. You have to look at the problem in a more enlightened way. And you start to see there are some solutions, but they're probably partial. And you can you, you, you aim to achieve those partial solutions because they aim to achieve a bigger aim and they aim towards a, a larger aim. And then you start accounting yourselves on this series of aims which lead towards the ultimate goal that you're looking for. But if you if you don't even have a clarity of how all these partial actions connect to the big aim, then in reality you're going nowhere and you'll 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 you won't know how to account yourself, let alone be accounted by others. Exactly. Uh, Brother Frederick Jonathan says, Asalaamu Alaikum, how do we uh, view the new US administration with relation to Palestine in the Muslim world? Some Muslims are optimistic. Uh, should we be? I mean, it's, it's a lot been said about this already, but, you know, the truth is, is that the American administration will do what American administrations do, and that is look after American interests. And American interests aren't the American interests of the American people. So even if you have a lot of Jewish people, a lot of American people, sorry, a Jewish people, a lot of Hispanic people, a lot of uh, Muslim people, a lot of people from all kinds of ethnicities and people who are, you know, for want of a better word, they're called them rednecks in America, you know, people who are like the, the MAGA, the Make America Great, the Trump supporters, you know, you've got all these kind of people, all of them American, and American administration doesn't actually represent any one of them. It doesn't look after any of them. It looks after the interests of the people who put it in power. It was put in power not by the electorate. The electorate were obviously the mechanism and the means, but the real power broker was the businesses that backed them, the ones who expecting something in return for all of that, you know, support that they've given to the politicians over the over the campaign and over the years. So the American administration will do, as I said, whatever the American administration always does, which is look after the interests of the capitalists, of the big businesses, and it will appeal to certain individuals within the society and it would claim that it's looking after their interests and it will appeal to the heartstrings or pull the heartstrings of certain people within the community the american society in order that it it you know it appears popular or appears you know it, it kind of removes an obstacle which is standing in the way but it's not the other way around the consultation is never ask the jewish community in america what they want and then we'll go and implement it with regards to palestine you know, or ask the Muslim people in America what they want, and then we'll go and implement that with regards to Sudan, Saudi, UAE, Palestine, whatever. That's not the way, sorry, that's not the way it happens. The way it happens is that the firstly the decision is made, we want to do this. This is the policy which is interest of our uh, of our backers, of our, you know, the capitalists. And it might be one or two, there might be multiple options, and then they say, Well, let's see if we can sell this to the Jews in America, let's see if we can sell this to the Americans in uh you know so the muslims in america and that's the way it goes and it's the same with international politics they will try to sell it to you know the palestinian people but truthfully they're not really very interested in the palestinian people per se they're interested in the leadership of the palestinian people if they can sell it to them and that's an easy sell because these people are just so happy to be there they're just pleased to be in the presence of such greatness of you know of of, of an american you know official whoever he is who comes to visit them that they they they'll agree to anything you know, just make sure my swimming pool is clean. Just make sure my new car, just make sure I get to stay in the Dorchester Hotel when I come to London. Just make sure there's enough, you know, um, 
you know pleasantries and 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 bribes and the gravy train as they call it is 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 big enough and deep enough for me to keep on living that luxurious life because that's actually what the Palestinian Authority has done. It has enriched itself and left the rest of the Palestinians to suffer. So nothing good has come out of the so-called peace deals that we've already got with the occupation. And we're going to see the continuation of that and nothing more. Even if, you know, we, we hear the occasional, inshallah, even if we hear the occasional reference, you know, and then the, the occasional token or bone is thrown towards the Muslims. It's like you've got the choice of two-state solution, which really means a massive Zionist occupation, a tiny slither of land called Palestine, with no military, with no independent, you know, a, a police force which is designed to keep its own people in check. It's there to keep the Palestinians prisoners, you know, and you may end up with a fixed border, which one American president will say is is, is actually fixed in theory, but in, in reality it can be quite movable. Another president will say, no, it's fixed, we're going to keep it fixed and we're, we're going to sanction anybody who tries to move it. It's that, it's that kind of petty dealing that we're dealing with. Is that the differences between their views isn't the difference where there should be a border. The difference is, are we going to allow Netanyahu, when it's, when it's in his interest, to expand that border a little bit more in his benefit and take a little bit more of the Palestinian land? That's how petty it's become. So that's the kind of um, differences of opinion we're dealing with. So not, don't expect too much. you know, And don't think that we can get into this game and start playing it and being so clever because we're being played ourselves. All those who claim they're, 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 they're playing the game, they're actually being played. I hear this from, uh, you know, Pakistani um, people in Pakistani politics or people in the, in the Pakistani military, uh, you know, they understand the situation. You say, look, you do know that America is telling your generals exactly what to do. And they say, yes, 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 we know that, we know that. But you don't know. We're like treble agents. We've got our own plan, which is going to trump the American plan in the long run. We've got the long term plan and we're going to come out on top at the end of it. That's just fantasy. It's just it's just a dream. But it's the way it's been sold to themselves, how they can. Ex sorry, how they can accept that hypocrisy and that double standard and that betrayal by their leaders is because they believe that. they Well, they don't believe, but they've been hoodwinked into thinking that there's some other plan behind the plan. And actually, it's not. It's, there is no plan. It is just pure subservience. And we tell ourselves these lies in order to make it palatable so that we don't feel that we're doing such wrong. Um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of today's session. Um, and um, Charles, was there anything in particular you want to finish off on? I've talked completely off the topic. I'm back on the topic. I've been all over the place. So I think we'll leave it there. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Podcasts on current events, Islamic guidance, Quran tafsir, and sirah are available at islampodcasts.com as well as on iTunes. Rate, review, and comment and let us know how we can grow in our knowledge to better serve our community. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend about islampodcasts.com.